Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series, which today is going to cover the Battle of Austerlitz, also known as the Battle of the Three Emperors, which took place on December the 2nd, 1805. Have you ever gotten into one of those conversations with friends? about a sports team, like what was the greatest football team or soccer team or baseball team of all time? Were the 1927 Yankees better than the 1975 Cincinnati Reds? Or maybe whether the Joe Montana of the San Francisco 49ers teams of the 1980s was better than Tom Brady of the New England Patriots today? Or maybe movie stars, Clark Gable or Tom Hanks, Elizabeth Taylor or Meryl Streep. It's a difficult thing to compare the stars of yesterday to those of another age because there's so many variables. The games themselves change. The challenges and advantages of one era or age don't exactly compare with those of another. And so it is when we compare Napoleon Bonaparte to earlier or later military commanders, such as Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar in the ancient world, or Frederick the Great, or the Duke of Marlborough, closer contemporaries of Napoleon, or von Molke, or Ulysses Grant, who came later. Nonetheless, Napoleon ranks, in my mind, as one of the greatest of the great. The Battle of Austerlitz is widely regarded as Napoleon's greatest military triumph. Napoleon himself thought so, and wrote so at the time. So this campaign that we're going to hear today, culminating in this famous battle, is the supreme accomplishment of the greatest military mind of his age, and perhaps of any age. What made Napoleon such a great leader and commander? That question could and has consumed many military thinkers in the nearly two centuries since his death, including Karl von Clausewitz, a contemporary Prussian general and military theorist, Henri de Jomini, a Swiss general and theorist also of the Napoleonic era, and many others. Speaking of books and theorists, as always, I've relied on many readings and research that I've done, but I want to quickly point out two particularly good books for those of you who would like to follow up on this and read a little bit more about it. Um, The first is The End of the Old Order by the incomparable Frederick W. Kagan. Anyone who 
uh, reads military history at all has heard of um, Frederick Kagan, uh, who, among his many accomplishments um, as a distinguished military uh, historian, has taught at West Point, uh, has been a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, specializing in defense issues and the American military. He's the author of numerous other uh, military histories um, and uh, has, in this book, tapped um, unknown archival materials from uh, Austria, Prussia, and France, and Russia to really dig into the very, you know, specific details of this era of history. His book concentrates really on the uh, era we're going to be talking about, the year that we're talking about, uh, 18, well, years, I should say, 1804 and 1805. The other uh, great book is by Alan Schoen, and it's simply entitled uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, Dr. Schoen uh, got his BA from the University of California at Berkeley and a PhD from Durham University in England. Um, he has uh, taught French and European history at Southern Connecticut State University and the University of California, Riverside, and is a fellow of the very prestigious Hoover Institution um, and has lectured on French history at Oxford University. He is also a prolific uh, author, and his book covers really the entire um, biography of Napoleon. Both of these books cover the campaign that we're going to talk about today, um, Frederick Kagan's book, in much more detail. After studying Napoleon for most of my adult life, he's a fascinating figure, and after having read a number of books about him and his contemporaries, I think I can summarize some of his unique qualities for you, with which few people would disagree. Among Napoleon's undoubted talents and qualities were his ability as an improviser, a thinker at the strategic, operational, and tactical levels. Napoleon often worked with what he had, or the tools at hand, as he put it. He rapidly processed information, especially on the battlefield, and was never afraid to alter a pre-existing plan to suit the changing realities of the moment. His timing and foresight in this regard were virtually unequaled by any of his contemporaries. Napoleon was an organizer who refined the core system to cope with managing the armies of his era, now larger than anything that had been seen before. His Grande Armée was essentially split into five, six, or eight miniature armies, or corps, of about fifteen to 30,000 men each. And each one of them was an all-arms corps, meaning that they were complete with artillery, cavalry, and infantry, and each with its own commander and staff, so that the components of a large army could be moved and maneuvered with speed and flexibility. This advance was so successful and complete that by the late Napoleonic period, all the great powers of Europe had adopted and incorporated it as well. Napoleon was a man with immense personal courage 
in the sense that he was willing to take enormous risks based upon his self-confidence that bordered at times on the megalomaniacal. He was a master of the art of deception in everything, but especially in the art of war. His personal charm could alternate with cold contempt in manipulating generals, ministers, and diplomats alike. He had a ruthless quality in the sense that he was willing to impose the most oppressive burdens upon people subject to his will to support his own ends. All of these various qualities combined in the person of of undoubtedly high intelligence, great energy, and supreme ambition to produce the man who led the French nation to its highest heights, but whose egocentric impulses eventually led him to overextend his empire and people and to his downfall. This podcast will cover Napoleon in his ascendant period, in the year 1805, one year after his coronation as Emperor of the French, when he faced down the other great powers of Europe in what has become known in history as the Third Coalition. To place this battle in historical context, as we always do, uh, we need to go back a little bit to 1789 and the French Revolution. At the time of the fall of the Bastille, Napoleon Bonaparte was 20 years old and a Corsican nationalist, that is to say, a nationalist for the island of Corsica where he was born and grew up. His first language was Italian. He had graduated from the elite École Militaire in 1785 and was granted a second lieutenant's commission in an artillery regiment. With the fall of the French monarchy in 1792, he was promoted to captain in the regular army. In 1793, a year later, he was named commander of artillery at Toulon, which was under occupation by the British at that time. His plan to seize the hills dominating the city and sight artillery on them forced the British to evacuate. In 1794, he was promoted to general, the youngest general ever appointed command in the French army at that time and to this very day. He had caught the eye of several powerful political figures in Paris of that day, and in 1795, he was called upon to suppress a royalist uprising in Paris. He did so with the help of a young cavalry officer, Joaquin Murat, who would later go on to become his brother-in-law, a marshal of France, and eventually a king. 1,400 royalists died in this violent suppression, the so-called whiff of gunpowder, to the gratitude of the government of the day. Now, France at that time was at war with the so-called First Coalition that included Great Britain, Prussia, Austria, and several lesser powers. It was in 1796 and 1797, however, that Napoleon achieved real fame as commander of France's army in Italy. Northern Italy was largely in the hands of the hostile Austrian Habsburg monarchy, and through its countryside, 
lay the roads from Austria into southern France. Napoleon attacked the kingdom of Piedmont with his army and quickly defeated it before turning on the surprised Austrians. In a series of battles, the Austrians were repeatedly defeated, particularly around their fortress bastion of Mantua, and followed by Napoleon until his army was only a hundred kilometers from Vienna. Austria agreed to peace terms, giving France control of northern Italy and Belgium, while Austria kept Venice, ending the first coalition. Napoleon was then given command of another army that he led to the conquest of Egypt from the Ottoman Empire and its temporary occupation by France, provoking the formation of the second coalition against France. Napoleon returned to France to a hero's welcome in 1799 and successfully conspired with others to overthrow the unpopular government in France. At the age of 30, he was essentially the dictator of France with the title of First Consul. In another invasion into Italy, this time through the Alps as Hannibal had done to the Romans, Napoleon inflicted another heavy defeat on the Austrians at Marengo. Russia withdrew from the coalition, and soon it collapsed again with Britain agreeing to peace terms in 1802, ending that war. There followed a period of about 14 months of peace, until once again Britain and France were at war in 1803, and the British cabinet set about assembling the Third Coalition, to once and for all overthrow Napoleon and the menace of France to the continent of Europe. It is this war in which the Battle of Austerlitz took place in late 1805, nearly two years later. In the meantime, Napoleon assembled a stupendous army of nearly 200,000 men in two huge camps near Boulogne on the English Channel in preparation for an invasion of England. Only the British fleet and control of the Channel prevented Napoleon from the likely conquest of Britain at that time. In some ways, the Napoleonic struggle between Britain and France was the final act in a play that had been going on for a hundred years, beginning with the War of the Spanish Succession, for mastery of the world. Britain depended upon enormous investment, training, and supply of the greatest navy in the world for its protection and to enable it to blockade France from its overseas colonies. The investment was so great that Britain's ability to field an army comparable to those of the continental powers was essentially nil. France, a significantly larger power at that time, but with potential enemies on land, invested first and foremost in its army, with its fleet a distant second. This resulted in a sort of protracted stalemate, with neither power really able to get at and defeat the other in a decisive manner. Britain's leader, William Pitt, made a virtue of necessity by knitting together an alliance of other great powers who also felt increasingly threatened by France. Sweden joined the coalition first, followed by Russia on July 28, 1805, and then, lastly, by Austria on August 9. Austria's emperor, Francis II, 
having twice experienced defeat at the hands of Napoleon, had not been anxious to go to war. But after Napoleon had himself crowned King of Italy, in addition to being Emperor of France, and directly annexed the Kingdom of Piedmont and Genoa, Austria was then permanently excluded from its traditional preeminence in northern Italy. Napoleon's weakness was an inability to know when to stop. His arrogance, fed by limitless self-confidence and a bullying attitude, aroused anger and fear from the old, proud dynasties of Europe. Only Prussia, with an army of some 200,000 supposedly crack soldiers and officers, declined to join the Third Coalition, much as Pitt and later Tsar Alexander of Russia tried to persuade it. Prussia's king, Frederick William III, was a vacillating ruler, and his advisers were opportunistic. By remaining neutral until it became clear who was likely to win, Prussia could maximize its territorial and other ambitions on the map of Europe, and so it held out. Further, the king's ministers continued to believe that, in the long run, Austria was Prussia's perpetual foe, and any war that weakened Austria was not a bad thing. Britain would never really send an army of any significance to the European continent during this war, but would annihilate the French navy at the Battle of Trafalgar on October 21, 1805, about a month and a half before Austerlitz. While this was an excellent result for Britain, it did nothing to extinguish the French threat on the continent. In any event, a plan to land a significant British army in northern Germany came to nothing, leaving the Austrians and the Russians alone to grapple with the French in 1805, when Prussia elected to remain on the sidelines. Nonetheless, Russia and Austria each disposed of an army at least as large as Napoleon when the war began. Combined, they could bring crushing numerical superiority to bear, and if Prussia could be persuaded to join them later, Napoleon's position would be virtually hopeless. Now a moment about the logistics of the day, because as always this has a great impact not only on how the campaign transpired, but on our understanding of this world of 200 years ago. First, the roads. Of course, there were no railroads in 1805. Trains and rails did not exist. Depending upon where you were in Europe, the roads ranged anywhere from footpaths and goat trails that simply ended in a pasture to cobbled or even metallic paved roads that amply supported and sped the progress of rolling artillery and wagons, cavalry, and marching infantry. Even so, the movement of armies was incredibly slow. For example, it took a month for Napoleon's Grande Armée to reach France's eastern border, the Rhine River, from Boulogne on the English Channel. It would take two months 
for Marshal Kutuzov's Russian army near Smolensk to reach Vienna. So, what are relatively moderate distances in modern Europe were immense in 1805. Secondly, the feeding and supplying of an army was a major logistical challenge, then, as it always is. Until the Napoleonic Wars, the distant movement of armies involved incredibly meticulous planning. Magazines of gunpowder, ammunition, and so forth had to be placed along a pre-planned route of advance that permitted little deviation once the army was underway. A long tail of bakeries, blacksmiths, medical supplies, food, forage for horses, and so on was also involved. Living off the land by an army had already replaced the pre-planned advanced placement method by 1805, but that presented its own problems as well. In rich farming areas during the summer or autumn when crops and livestock were at their best, this method of requisitioning and local purchase worked reasonably well, but winter and early spring made a campaign nearly impossible. Austerlitz took place on December 2nd, 1805. Deprivation and starvation would have a significant impact on the French. But even in the better months, an army living off the land needed to keep moving and dispersed because a stationary or massive army would literally eat out an area. For this reason, large armies dispersed by necessity to parallel roads, keeping their distance from one another to be able to support themselves. Armies were, of course, supplemented by supply lines from home as well, but the meager transport and slow pace of such supplies made them unreliable and intermittent. Furthermore, the longer the lines became, the worse it got. Austerlitz was 700 miles from Paris, a fantastic distance at that time. Furthermore, such supply lines could be cut by the enemy, either by smaller armies or so-called irregular forces, such as Cossacks in Russia's case or Hungarian Hussars in Austria's. This led to a need to garrison strong points along the way, which in turn led to what's known as strategic attrition of an army, the farther away from home or bases it got. By the time Napoleon's army reached Austerlitz, its numbers had been significantly decreased by garrisons all the way back to France. Now let's talk about ordnance and weaponry in this, area, in this era. First, the artillery. Napoleon, an artillery officer by education and training, once said that, quote, it is artillery from which war is made, unquote. In the huge battles of the Napoleonic era, artillery was of crucial and sometimes decisive importance. The typical cannon of this era was smooth bore and shot a solid metal ball of between 4 and 12 pounds. The French Gribeauval cannon was exceptionally light and therefore more maneuverable than comparable cannon of other armies. Nonetheless, 
batteries of cannon were generally set up just ahead of the massed infantry and guarded by cavalry. Most battles began with a significant pounding of opposed infantry by cannon at a distance of 1,500 yards or less. As infantry approached, the ammunition would change to canister or grape shot. 60 to 100 musket balls wrapped in light or heavier paper case that burst apart upon being fired, scattering them like a machine gun burst at close range into enemy infantry or cavalry. Artillery of this era also included howitzers, which could lob an explosive shell over the top of trees, low hills, castle walls, or fortifications, which conventional artillery could not do. Another innovation of the Napoleonic era was so-called horse artillery, light artillery that could be quickly brought to a decisive point unlimbered and fire. James Burbeck, an author and historian who founded uh, the War Times Journal, wrote a description of what the impact of this artillery was like on the, Napoleon, on the Napoleonic battlefield, and I'm going to quote him here. The effects of Napoleonic artillery fire on humans could be terrifying. While modern weapons may or may not tear and rend, artillery round shot was virtually guaranteed to cause dramatic and gory casualties. The cannonballs themselves were subsonic and lobbed slowly through the air, loudly whistling as they approached. Even at the end of its effective range, rolling shot would bowl men over and cause widespread injury. If flying shot hit a horse, it was not just a matter of the horse falling over. The ball might strike the saddlebags, scattering the contents in every direction, as the horse went spinning, splattering pieces of the animal closely behind the chunks of leather and cloth. At close range, artillery fire would punch holes straight through entire sections of units. Pretty gory indeed. Nonetheless, artillery was extremely vulnerable and created problems on the battlefield that had to be managed. Limbering, unlimbering, and setting up an artillery piece took a lot of time. Artillery was heavy and slowed down the army, requiring a team of horses to pull it along and into position on the battlefield. Horses were killed almost as prodigiously as human beings on a battlefield, and if a particular battery were unlucky with their horses, the artillery could not be moved away from an advancing cavalry or infantry assault. Artillery was fired by touching a match to a touch hole at the top of the piece and could be spiked by enemy units that even briefly overran it by jamming a piece of metal or anything else that would clog the touch hole, rendering the whole thing useless. Smoke from successive rounds obscured the battlefield and movement by friend and foe alike, often resulting in deaths from friendly fire that the artillery battery could not distinguish. So there's the artillery. Now let's talk about the cavalry. This is often the most glamorous part of the army, but mishandled could take enormous casualties. Horses gave the army its speed and shock value but was extremely vulnerable to the higher orders of infantry, as I'll explain in a minute. 
who were trained to receive a cavalry charge in bristling squares of bayonets punctuated by salvos of musket fire. Often the cavalry was made up of aristocrats or bourgeois sons, because after all, riding a horse was preferable to walking. But you had to buy and bring your own horse and equipment in those days. Cavalry units had many different purposes and uses, leading to many different kinds of cavalry. Light cavalry was so-called because of the absence of protective armor and the use of lighter weapons, such as lances or sabers. They were the fastest but most vulnerable units, great for scouting, harassing, and cutting down fleeing soldiers who had thrown down their weapons in a rout. Heavier cavalry used protective breastplates and leg protection, and with similar protection for their horses, but were slower. They were great for shock attacks on infantry engaged in combat with enemy infantry, providing the finishing touch, often from the flank or rear, that ignited panic and a rout. Then there were the cuirassars, the heaviest cavalry of all, which could produce devastating routs of untrained infantry or other cavalry on their own. They could guard artillery, driving off enemy cavalry meant to overrun and neutralize the cannon. In fact, since cavalry was generally fast-moving, artillery was largely ineffective against them and posed the greatest threat to an isolated battery during a battle. Now the infantry. Infantry, in the end, was what did the bulk of the fighting and whose success or defeat spelled victory or catastrophe. Infantry also came in many different varieties in the Napoleonic Wars. On one end were skirmishers, lightly armed, trained marksmen, like the Austrian Grenzes. At the other end were the grenadiers, usually selected for their extreme height and strength, and who carried primitive grenades, a long musket with bayonet, and were renowned for their deadly hand-to-hand fighting prowess. The bulk of Napoleonic infantry, though, were so-called line infantry, well-drilled masses of conscripts or volunteers or professionals who fired massive shattering musket volleys into opposing forces, sometimes using fire and advance tactics that, once close enough, were followed by a bayonet charge. Militias were often used, but they were frequently poorly trained and had little stamina or heart for battle when it got warm, frequently breaking and running. They were generally regarded as unreliable by Napoleonic generals for this reason. One of the main advantages of the French army was that it had been in place since war had been declared by England in 1802, three years earlier. Drilling, training, and practicing as soldiers for nearly two years in Boulogne when the war broke out. As such, they were a much more flexible, responsive instrument to Napoleon's purpose than the conscripts that made up the armies of the two eastern emperors that tended to be very sluggish and slow-moving by comparison. Nonetheless, 
Both the Austrian and Russian armies had a corps of professional soldiers that were formidable indeed, and they had numbers. So now, let's talk about the campaign itself. To begin with, the seeds of destruction for the coalition forces began with a wildly overambitious strategic plan. As we've already seen, one piece of the plan would never materialize, a British landing in French-occupied northern Germany, Hanover to be exact, which could have pinned down a considerable part of the French army that would unite with Napoleon's forces crossing the Rhine with very unfortunate results for the Austrian army stationed on the Danube at Ulm in October. The general idea was for the coalition to embark on simultaneous attacks on multiple fronts at once to force the collapse of the French, who simply didn't have the manpower or ability to confront more than one or two points. Aside from the British invasion of Hanover, it was initially hoped that Prussia would allow Russian forces through its territory to strike at northern France or even join them. Prussia refused, so that didn't happen either. Then there was supposed to be another combined Russian-British invasion of southern Italy, taking Naples and moving up the coast into French-controlled northern Italy and into southern France itself. None of these schemes materialized, but unfortunately, the forces of Austria and Russia were dispersed to some extent to pursue them, depriving the commanders of the decisive front in Central Europe of their numbers. Napoleon, by contrast, concentrated nearly his entire advancing army on the front in Germany, drawing his forces to the center, if you will, the decisive point. The Austrian dilemma is the most pointed and crucial and illustrates the point better than any other aspect of the war. As we have said, the Austrian army alone was equal in size and roughly comparable in weaponry to the French. In the right hands, and particularly if on the defensive with all the advantages that would bring, it should have been able to hold its own against the French, pending the arrival of the Russian armies on the scene. Unfortunately, it was neither in the right hands nor concentrated in one place. The command of the Austrian army was divided between the emperor's brother, the Archduke Charles, and General Karl Mack, with Mack's command in turn undermined by having as his nominal superior an, another younger, inexperienced brother of the emperor, the Archduke Ferdinand. Austria's position, as far closer to France than Russia, meant that it would likely receive first the onslaught from France. Given its difficulties in the past two wars, Austria naturally hoped to wait for the Russians to arrive before taking on Napoleon, but geography conspired against her. The dilemma was which way Napoleon would come at Austria, through Germany or through Italy. The Swiss, due to their declared neutrality and the nearly impassable Alps, created a huge barrier between the two theaters of war, but each of which ended to the east with the Austrian capital at Vienna. The last two wars, the French had come at Austria mainly through Italy. 
Rather than maintain a single large army intact to receive the French in western or upper Austria, the Austrians decided to divide their forces. By far the larger force was given to Archduke Charles and sent into Italy. A smaller but still significant force of about 60,000 was given to Mack and Ferdinand to guard the approach across the Rhine and through Bavaria. Yet another, even smaller force of about 20,000 was given to yet another brother of the emperor, the Archduke John, to remain in between the two armies in Tyrolia and go where needed the most. The Austrians guessed wrong. Napoleon sent little toward Italy and instead zeroed in on the Austrian army under Mack, which had made things even worse by aggressively rushing forward through Bavaria to a line along the Iller River, anchored by the fortress city of Ulm. Mack felt sure that, even if he got the worst of it from Napoleon, he would be fighting far from Vienna and could retreat eastward back toward the capital and the advancing Russians. That illusion and his operational situation was shattered when Napoleon ordered French forces in northern Germany to violate Prussian neutrality, marching through its territory and into the rear of Mack's army, cutting off its retreat. Napoleon then methodically encircled the Austrians and compelled the surrender of much of Mack's army, including General Mack himself, on October 19, 1805. The psychological impact on the Austrian court from the disaster at Ulm was far disproportionate to the actual loss of men and arms. The Austrian armies were now poorly disposed for the rest of the campaign, with the Archduke Charles and the largest component of the army in Italy and smaller isolated groups in Bohemia and elsewhere. In the six weeks or so between Ulm and Austerlitz, the slow-moving and cautious Austrians would never manage to bring the bulk of their army to rendezvous with the Russians. Accordingly, while the Battle of Austerlitz is rightly regarded as an Austro-Russian debacle, it was mainly a Russian one, although with a significant contribution from the Austrians as well as we'll see. So let's talk about the Russians and their commanders. At the beginning of the campaign, there were essentially three Russian formations intact and another reserve formation being formed up by the Tsar Alexander I. I'll take them in order from north to south. An enormous army of about 120,000 under the command of General Levin August Benigsen was situated at the border of East Prussia, near the Baltic Sea, waiting for the order to move through Prussia, or, in, the ca in case Prussia actually sided with France, to deter such a move or invade. A second, smaller army of about 40,000, under the command of General Friedrich Wilhelm Buxhauden, was stationed to the south of Benningsen, around Minsk. The third and most important army for our purposes was yet another force of about 40,000 under the command of Field Marshal Mikhail Kutuzov, with only one eye and then 60 years old. 
He was undoubtedly the most distinguished veteran commander of the Russian Empire in his day and one of Russia's most famous generals ever. His immense prestige, having served the Tsar's father and grandmother, Catherine the Great, irked the young Tsar, however, who had no military experience at all, and was only 27 years old at Austerlitz. By the time of the Battle of Ulm, Kutuzov's army was located about midway between Ulm and Vienna, still a few days' march from Mack when he surrendered. With about 25,000 Austrians trapped and surrendered, and the rest dispersed north and south, Kutuzov realized he had no option but to retreat and play for time. By then, Buxhauden's forces were far to the east and north, having just crossed the Austrian border into Bohemia around Olmutz, not far from the eventual battlefield of Austerlitz. Kutuzov hoped that as he retreated east, his forces and those of Buxhauden could be further augmented by the remaining Austrian forces, including some 120,000 Austrians under the command of the Archduke Charles, who were now hastily withdrawing from Italy. On October 22nd, Kutuzov did rendezvous with an entire Austrian corps under the command of General Mikhail von Keinmeier, who had escaped the Napoleonic dragnet that fell around the unfortunate Mack and had retreated east. At Amstetten, one of Kutuzov's subordinate commanders, General Pitor Bagration, another great Russian general, checked an advance guard of French under Murat on November 5th while the Austro-Russian army crossed the Danube, destroying the bridges behind them. On November 7th, Kutuzov mauled another French corps under Mortier in a surprise attack at Durenstein. Several other sharp engagements followed between fragments of the two armies as Kutuzov avoided giving battle to the main army, retreating ever east and north. In the meantime, on November 15th, Vienna was occupied by the French. In time, Kutuzov reached Olmutz, where he joined Buxhauden's army to his own, and the, tre- and the retreat was halted. It was now nearly December. Additional Austrian forces joined the coalition army, including a large force of cavalry under Prince Liechtenstein, which would play a significant role in the battle. In all, the coalition army numbered about 85,000 troops, of which about 70% were Russian, theoretically under the command of Kutuzov, but, as we'll see, this became more illusory than real with the arrival of Tsar Alexander and Emperor Francis to the camp. The question now arose about what to do next. For those of you wondering what that is, that 
sort of a familiar tune. Uh, that is God Save the Tsar, sung here by the Orthodox Singers, a Russian choral group. Now let's turn to the French for a minute. Napoleon's main problem at this time was his inability to bring Kutuzov to battle, where he could hope for an opportunity to achieve another decisive victory that would end the war to his advantage. As already pointed out, foraging for supplies in December produced meager fare indeed, and Napoleon's army was dangling at the end of a 700-mile supply route. With the imminent onset of winter in Eastern Europe, Napoleon was running out of time before he would have to retreat, at least to some extent, giving the coalition at least the appearance of a victory that might restore their morale. Worse still was the possibility of huge additional forces coming to crush him from north and south. Archduke Charles was making his way through southern Austria with a force almost as large as his own. Due to the violation of Prussian territory, the King of Prussia had now decided to join the coalition and was mobilizing his army, although he had not yet declared war. Kutuzov was content to sit and wait around Olmutz, but was now overruled by the Tsar. The young and inexperienced Russian Tsar apparently regarded Kutuzov with a mixture of insecurity and impatience. Kutuzov was something of a relic from the bygone days of his grandmother, it seemed, and Alexander was easily flattered and goaded by much younger and similarly inexperienced members of his own aristocratic court. These younger men were extremely anxious for battle and to attack, and so Kutuzov's counsel of patience and time was rejected in favor of a forward movement. The Austrians, in an inferior position at this point, with by far the smaller contribution of forces, and after the defeat at Ulm, ceded operational control to the Russians, but were probably assuaged in doing so by the fact that one of their own, Franz von Weyrother, an Austrian general, was in the service of the Tsar and drew up the actual plan of attack for the battle. On December 1st, Napoleon was delighted to learn that the Austro-Russian army had broken camp at Olmutz and was moving toward him, apparently ready to give battle. This operational decision by the coalition was another major mistake that led to its defeat just five days later. Napoleon immediately summoned his outlying corps to join him for the battle. This included corps under the command of Marshals Bernadette, Mortier, and Davout to join with him and Marshals Soult, Lannis, and Murat at Austerlitz as quickly as possible. He presaged this movement by false intelligence leaked to the coalition forces that suggested weakness and the likelihood that he was about to retreat. As the coalition forces approached the battlefield, he purposely abandoned a strong defensive position, a high plateau known as the Pratzen Heights, 
which confirmed the impression of the Austro-Russian command and lured them into a trap of Napoleon's making. The topography of the battlefield of Austerlitz is very important to understanding its outcome. Napoleon arrayed his forces in a sort of upside-down L shape. If you can imagine it on a piece of paper, the long side of the L would go up and down on the left side of the page, with the short side of the upside-down L across the top. The position on the top was an even higher ridge than the Pratzen Plateau, known as the Santon Heights. But as you made your way around and down the L to the bottom, you would be in a shallow valley with a small brook known as the Goldbach. Several villages hugged the uh, bank of the Goldbach, connected by a small north-south road that eventually joined a much larger east-west road running between Olmutz and Brunn. Initially, Almost undefended, Napoleon maneuvered the late-arriving Davout's corps into the southernmost of these villages along the Golbach, Telnitz and Sokolnitz. Sult's corps was to Davout's left, facing the slope up to the top of the Pratzen Heights and assembling forces of the coalition's left wing under Buxhauden. Napoleon's trap and the success of the battle depended upon the overconfidence of the coalition and its willingness to attack in force downhill from the heights, falling on the weakly defended villages along the Goldbach Brook. And this is what, exactly what Weyerhaeuser's plan was. While maintaining a force under Bagration on the Olmutz-Brunn Road, you remember at the top of the page, Facing Napoleon and particularly Lannis's corps, Weyreuther's plan would send four huge columns down the slopes, cross the Goldbach while routing the French forces there, and then wheel to their right, to the north, falling on the rear of Napoleon's main army for the decisive battle. At that point, Bagration's corps, the Russian Imperial Guard, and other reserves would crush in from the east, catching Napoleon in a vice. The plan was deeply flawed and poorly executed, not least because it assumed that Napoleon would sit in one place and not move while this unfolded. But the main flaw was that it essentially divided the coalition army in two, leaving exposed and extremely weak the center on the Pratzen Heights. Communications, never easy in a battle of this era, would be non-existence once things got underway, isolating each component of the coalition army. Furthermore, the command of the all-important four-column thrust down the slopes was entrusted to Buxhauden, perhaps the least competent of the generals on the field, who situated himself with the southernmost column that would assault Telnitz. Another flaw was that the plan required exquisite timing and a complex parallel maneuvering of the columns once across the brook, together with rapid aggressive pace as this force made its way north. 
for an army that, unlike the Grand Armée, who had trained together for two years, had never managed or done anything together as a united body, and certainly not quickly, and was divided in command, this was far too much to expect. Finally, the coalition army was unlucky. On the morning of battle, a thick fog had settled down in the valley between the Pratzen Heights and the Golbach, obscuring Napoleon's burgeoning center, located at the elbow of the upside-down L, including Bernadette, Murat, Bessier, and the rest of Soult's corps. A disjointed but colossal movement began shortly after dawn on December 2nd at 8 o'clock in the morning when Buxhauden's forces began attacking formations of Davout's corps around Telnitz. Tellingly, Buxhauden's forces arrived piecemeal and fierce fighting broke out in and around the village with dug-in French forces taking pot shots and repelling repeated attempts to take or hold the town. Far from an easy walkover conquest, it might have been, had Buxhauden arrived en masse, his drive stalled until he moved up additional forces. In the meantime, the other columns failed to start on time, so as to mount a simultaneous attack further upstream, which enabled Davu and Soult to send reinforcements to Telnitz to retake the village after it had been lost and to continue to embroil the Russians. When the second column under General Langeron arrived to attack Sokolnitz, it actually missed its attack point and the opportunity to swarm into the town while its defenders were assisting those at Telnitz. Eventually, Buxhauden managed to take the village and repel the French, but were then checked from advancing out of the village by French artillery. Similarly, Langeron became bogged down in heavy fighting around a stone church near Sokowitz, unable to quickly clear French resistance, which was also reinforced on and off by just enough soldiers to continue to pin down the Russians. And so it went. In the meantime, as the fighting continued, the fog began to burn off. And at around 8.45, the French positions in the center began to become potentially visible to the Russians. But to no avail. Kutuzov, with the fourth and last column, hesitated to advance and leave the heights practically undefended. But at that moment, the Tsar himself rode up on his horse and, in full view of the officers and soldiers, chastised Kutuzov for not having begun his movement already. Stung by the rebuke, Kutuzov gave the order, and as Napoleon watched through his spyglass, the Pratzen Heights was vacated. Or nearly so. Actually, the clumsy and late maneuvering of the coalition forces gave them an advantage they really shouldn't have had because some troops were still on the Pratzen Heights when the attack began. In any event, as Napoleon and Marshal Soult watched, a conversation took place between them. Soult was concerned with the rapidly dissolving fog and increasing exposure of his troops. 
and began to urge Napoleon to order the counterattack on the denuded Pratzen Heights. Reportedly, Napoleon asked Soult how long it would take his forces to reach the heights. Quote, about 20 minutes, sire, was the reply. Napoleon patiently waited another 15 minutes and then gave the order. Soult's forces then lurched forward through the remaining fog and up the slopes. As I've said, paradoxically, the clumsy, poorly coordinated, ill-timed attack by the four columns actually worked to the advantage of the coalition to some extent. Remnants of the fourth column under Kutuzov were still on the heights as General Saint-Hilaire's division was the first to reach the top and crash into them. The Russians were stunned and for the first time noticed the mass of French infantry moving onto the heights almost on top of them. Bitter fighting began, but the Russians were overwhelmed and cut to pieces. An Austrian formation from the second column that was still lingering on the heights moved to support the Russians and actually succeeded in forcing Saint-Hilaire back down the slopes, but a counterattack carried the day. Most of the main part of the coalition army was still down in the valley below. Much bitter and violent fighting raged for several hours on the heights, but with the French having by far the better of it, situated there en masse while the Russians and Austrians arrived piecemeal, only to be cut to pieces and forced back. The final attempt to clear the heights was by the Russian Imperial Guard under the command of the Alexander's brother, Prince Constantine. Initially successful at routing Van Damme's division, Napoleon ordered his heavy cavalry into action that he had held in reserve, and this tipped the scales. The Imperial Guard retreated in good order, as did Kutuzov and what was left of his force, but the heights were now deserted. Napoleon now shifted the bulk of his army toward the hapless coalition forces in the valley, catching them between the remaining forces um, there under Davout and Soult, and those coming down from the heights. A general panic and collapse of the coalition forces followed. Langeron's remaining force was surrounded, and he surrendered. Buxhauden managed to escape with some of his forces across a frozen lake, but many were drowned with the loss of artillery when the ice broke after shelling by Napoleon's batteries. In the north, Bagration's troops straddling the Olmutz Brun Road that were supposed to wait until they caught sight of the victorious coalition columns advancing up the Goldbach decided to launch their own attack with Prince Lichtenstein's cavalry against General Kellerman's light cavalry. Initially, they were successful, but Marshal Murat eventually sent in two squadrons of cuirassars, who, after an hour's worth of fighting, eventually drove off Lichtenstein. Lannis's Fifth Corps then engaged Bagration, who fought a very nice battle, but slowly retreated down the road toward Olmitz when no support arrived. The shock of the Austro-Russian defeat at Austerlitz was so complete that it ended the War of the Third Coalition within days, even though very substantial forces against Napoleon remained in the field, and Prussia, 
had about completed its mobilization. Indeed, in the days after the battle, thousands of survivors filtered back into the coalition camps around Olmutz, swelling its ranks once again. Bennigsen's huge army was still quite some distance away, but would arrive eventually, and was alone as large as Napoleon's remaining army, let alone that of Austria's greatest commander, the Archduke Charles, coming up from the south. But the Austrian emperor had had enough. He sued for peace and got it in the oppressive Treaty of Pressburg that brought an end to the thousand-year-old Holy Roman Empire. The peace terms were harsh for Austria indeed, but left the Habsburg monarchy intact to fight again another day, which it did twice more in 1809 and again in 1813 to 1815, when its commander, Karl Philipp, Prince of Schwarzenberg, led the last coalition to victory over Napoleon. Russia continued to fight along with Britain, and in 1806, alongside Prussia, who experienced a similar overwhelming defeat at the twin battles of Jena and Auerstadt. In 1807, after suffering another massive defeat by Napoleon at Friedland, the Tsar finally made peace. Austerlitz established France and Napoleon as the master of continental Europe and the supreme military commander of his age. As a battle, it continues to be studied and marveled by military historians to this day as a masterstroke that transformed a difficult and even desperate strategic situation into one of the most profound military triumphs of all time and doomed the continent of Europe and therefore the world to another ten years of war and thereby forever bent the arc of history. <laughs> 